open your Bibles with me once again to the book of Mark. For those of you who are visiting this morning, we are uh, studying the book of Mark. That is uh, normally what we do here at Ascension is we work our way through books of the Bible, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And um, this morning we come to a text and a subject matter that we have looked about in the distant past, um, but one that I think uh, we too easily, I don't think, I know that we too easily forget uh, about the content of this passage and what it calls us to be about. And so it's good for us to be here again. If you have your Bibles, open them with me. Encourage you to keep them open and follow along as we'll be looking at the text and picking it apart. Um, I'm not up here to tell you what Nate Hitchcock thinks. I'm up here to tell you what I think God says uh, to you as his people. And to those of you who may be here this morning who, who aren't his, who wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here, but we want you to know also that God is speaking to you, that you're not here by accident. And so we hope that God speaks very clearly to you this morning. Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 22. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. Uh, I've been thinking about this. We stand anyway after we read God's Word because we sing the Gloria Patri. And, and I would like, as a sign of honor and um, recognizing what God's Word is, I would like to begin this practice by standing when God's Word is read before we preach it, uh, as they did uh, back in the book of Ezra. And so listen as I read, follow along either in your Bibles or in the bulletin insert that you find there in your bulletin. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin with a question, a couple different questions. I want to ask you what it feels like when you really long for something. What kind of power does that longing have over you? Many of you have heard the story of the summer before Anna, my wife, and I got engaged. You see, I was headed home here uh, up to Linden to work for the summer. She was headed uh, to Alabama to be a counselor at a Christian camp, a counselor on a team that included about a dozen other eligible 
godly young men. Thousands of miles separated us. And simply put, I was afraid that I was going to lose her. I longed to be with her. But thousands of miles separated us. So what did I do? Well, my longing wasn't just a heart condition. My, my longing actually took feet. It actually caused me to do something. I resolved that summer that I was not going to let her forget that I was on the other side of the country thinking about her every single day. And so after work, no matter how tired I was, if I was too tired, I'd do it the next morning. Whatever else needed to be put aside, I wrote her. And kids, this is back in the day of like old-fashioned letters and stamps. Amen. Every day, I would put a letter in the mail because I needed to show her that she was more important to me than anything. I've entitled this sermon, as you can see in your bulletin, Feast or Fast. And that's the confusion that we find ourselves in as we come to this next section of Mark's gospel and as, we, as he's giving us the account of Jesus' life. That's the confusion that exists. And it's the same question that's before us today. Feast or fast? So which is it? Well, the answer is both. Both. Two truths that I want us to think about. And the first one is this. Jesus has come. Let the feasting begin. Jesus has come. Let the feasting begin. You see, at the center of our passage this morning is a question, one posed to Jesus directly. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, they don't fast? Now, maybe some of our kids are wondering, what, what are you talking about? What is fasting? Well, fasting was and still is the practice of not eating or abstaining from food or drink for a period of time for some specific purpose. Fasting was a regular yearly practice in the nation of Israel for centuries. It was part of the observance of the Day of Atonement as the high priest stood for, before God to atone for the sins of his people. The book of Leviticus says God's people needed to afflict themselves by fasting, that they might feel their deep sorrow, that they might feel the seriousness of their sin as the high priest went before God. In addition to this yearly fast on the Day of Atonement, fasting had become over the centuries part of Old Testament piety in the Jewish religion. And so here in Mark, we're told that John's disciples are fasting, not because it's the Day of Atonement, but because they're following John the Baptist, the one who is preaching, repent, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so they're mourning over their sin and they're, they're fasting, they're abstaining from food as a result. There was a seriousness, a solemnness, and a longing for the Messiah that they were expressing through their fasting. 
Now we're also told that the disciples of the Pharisees fasted. They were fasting probably for different reasons. You see, the Pharisees were all about scoring spiritual points through their religious practices and through their religiosity. In fact, by this time, the Pharisees already had an extra-biblical, regularly prescribed fast every Tuesday and Thursday. And so the question that Jesus is really being asked, it goes something like this, if I were to rephrase it. So Jesus, I, I don't get it. John's disciples are fasting because they're serious about their sin. They're longing for the Messiah. The, the, the Pharisees are fasting because they're serious about pleasing God through their works. But what's the deal with your followers? Are they serious about anything? Remember the last passage we looked at, Jesus was, was chilling with the sinners and the tax collectors. He's gaining quite a reputation. And Jesus responds to the question, like Jesus often responds to questions in his own questioning, in his own searching style. And he asked them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them? And then he answers it for them. No, they can't. They can't fast right now because fasting right now isn't appropriate. It's not the right context. You see, I have come, Jesus says. Let the feasting begin. Because of Jesus' presence, because of the, the newness that he brings, the, the old forms of religion... The old forms of Jewish religion, they're not appropriate, at least not in the way they've been practiced. And Jesus makes this point and further explains this by using three metaphors that you see in your Bibles there. First, he declares himself to be the bridegroom. So he puts in people's minds the picture of a wedding. Jesus loved weddings. His first miracle was at a wedding. Indeed, weddings are beautiful celebrations of love and commitment. They're pictures, right, of Jesus and his love for the church. Well, of course he loves weddings. And Jesus says, the bridegroom's here. The wedding, the wedding's happening. There's no time for long faces. It's time to feast. It's time to celebrate. And if we back up for a moment, we'd see that back in Israel's history, way back in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years prior to this, Isaiah prophesied that there would be an age to come when Yahweh, Yahweh, the personal name of God, the covenant-keeping God who entered into relationship with Israel, when Yahweh would be the bridegroom and Israel would be his bride. But here's the thing, when Isaiah speaks of it, the title is Yahweh's not the Christ's, not the Messiah's. And so Jesus is essentially saying, I'm here. I'm God. God is with you. Not only that, but the age that Isaiah prophesied is now. It is upon you. It has arrived. Let the wedding feast begin. So he calls himself the bridegroom, but then he goes on and he 
He continues with another picture in verse 21. No one sews a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. What Jesus is saying is that the newness of what has arrived in him is not going to fit with the old patterns. Jesus comes with a new cloth altogether. Robes of righteousness, Isaiah 61 says. They don't fit on the old forms. Jesus has come, let the feasting begin. And then finally in verse 22, he speaks of wine. Wine. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You see, the ancient practice was to put wine not in bottles, but in goatskin bags. And these goatskin bags would allow the new wine to expand as it went through the fermentation process. But when the bags got old, they would get brittle. And so you never want to put new wine in an old bag because that would be disastrous. When the wine continues to ferment, it will burst the bag. Jesus says new wine needs new wineskins. The newness of what I bring trumps all that has gone before. And this picture of wine, just like the picture of a bridegroom in a wedding feast, just like the picture of garments and the robes of righteousness, these are not off-the-cuff remarks for Jesus. No, Jesus is drawing the Jews back to what they know. Wine was one of the most vivid pictures in the Old Testament of the age to come. Jeremiah 31 describes the new covenant day flowing with wine. Joel 3 and Amos 9 both picture the abundance of wine in the new age. Why is there wine? Because there's joy. There's rejoicing. Wine is the drink of gladness and celebration and provision. All the things that Jesus says have arrived in me. So the old form of mournful fasting, it doesn't fit with the Jesus that's now here. The Jesus that has come. The Jesus that brings blazing joy. So let the feasting begin. Jesus is better. He's a fuller revelation than the Jews ever had. He's a better leader than Moses. He's a better sacrifice that was than any that was ever offered. He's the better high priest. He gives more access to God than a, they ever had before. Through him they have peace. Through him they are received by grace and not works. Through him they are adopted as sons and daughters. Through him they have his spirit. Everything's better. Everything's newer. Let the feasting begin. You see, this is a passage where Mark simply reminds us to rejoice in the gospel, in the goodness of what Jesus has brought. Let your soul feast on his goodness. Let the joy of the gospel pervade your spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Jesus has come. But there's another truth, obviously, that comes from this passage 
a passage which serves kind of as a, as a paradox of sorts. And it comes from the verse that we skipped, verse 20. The days will come, says Jesus, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus has certainly come. Jesus has ushered in the new age. Jesus is here among his people and will dwell with his people by his spirit until he returns in fullness. All that is true. But the reality is Jesus has been taken away. Jesus is not here in fullness. But just what Isaiah prophesied would happen to the suffering servant has happened. He is not here. He's gone. And the presence of Jesus by his spirit and the absence of Jesus in fullness illustrate this reality that the age that is now and the age to come, there's this overlap. And you theologians in this room know what this is called. It's called the already and the not yet. We live in the already and the not yet. See, Jesus has come. We can feast. The new age is upon us, but we don't have it all yet. The bridegroom has been taken away. Things are not as they should be. And the wine isn't fully flowing yet. And so we long for that age to come. And so alongside the feasting is a hungering. Yes, even a fasting. And that's the second truth is Jesus will come again, hunger for his return. Jesus has come, let the feasting begin, but also Jesus will come again. So hunger for his return. Alongside the feast of the gospel, in fact, produced by the feast of the gospel, is this longing, this hunger for more. It's not a physical hunger. It's a hunger of the soul. Our souls were made to be satisfied in God. And so if he's not fully here, even though there's feasting to be had, we are still going to want more. At least we ought to be wanting more. And that's what Jesus is saying, is when he's gone, his followers Long for him. Now, spiritual hunger, it's more than just a decision. Okay, I'm going to be spiritually hungry. No, it's a heart issue. It's something we have to deal with in our hearts, but our text this morning gives us something that along with the help of God's Spirit is made to assist the cultivating of our hearts. The Lord tells us that when he leaves, his followers will fast. Essentially, in part then, we hunger through fasting. We hunger through fasting. Fasting is not only an outworking of hunger, it's an expression of longing. It's a way to intensify hunger, spiritual hunger. And Christian fasting, what we're called to here in this passage, is grounded in the truth of the triumph of God in Jesus Christ. You see, no no sooner had Jesus left earth than the early church is fasting. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. 
Now, as most of you know, the practice of fasting, even the religious practice of fasting, is not something that's unique to Christianity. Millions of people fast for various religious purposes. By God's common grace, it's a recognition by humanity that the physical can so easily get in the way of the spiritual. And so just like prayers spoken without the mediation of Jesus, just like good deeds not done to the glory of God, we must fast with the bridegroom Jesus in mind. Otherwise, it's just an empty religious exercise. Fasting isn't some magical deed for us to earn points for God. It's an expression of a heart that longs for God. Christian fasting recognizes that the bridegroom is gone. That none of the good things that our Father has given us here on earth can ultimately satisfy that hunger. So while the scriptures don't give specific instructions about when or how often, Jesus assumes that his followers are going to fast. And I think for many of us, we just don't do this. Fasting is hard. And we just forget about it. As God brings us to his word again and to this subject matter, I pray that that he does his work in us to return us and to to prod us to this important practice. Let me read some, some quotes. From a couple scholars and authors, the first one is this. Self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude. And self-discipline, usually its friend and generator. That's why gluttony is a deadly sin. The early desert fathers believe that a person's appetites are linked. Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil our appetite for God. Another quote, more than any discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We cover up what's inside of us with food and with other things. We've talked about fasting before, I think in different contexts. We could talk a lot more about this subject of fasting. There are books written about this subject. But let me just close with this. Let me ask, what is the state of your longing for Jesus? How much do you long for Jesus? And do you ever express that longing for Jesus by just setting aside everything else that you might focus on him? Folks, I know it's hard to do but it's so good for our souls. And it doesn't have to be food. Some of you shouldn't fast from food for health reasons. 
What are other things in your life that are getting in the way of your longing for Jesus, your longing for the fullness of his presence? TV, the internet, Facebook, talk radio, whatever. Let God's word and let God's spirit prod you and encourage you to hunger for Jesus by hungering for other things and clearing them out of the way. My longing for Anna that I spoke at the beginning of the sermon, that was a longing that was filled with uncertainty. Would the efforts, would the daily grind of letter writing pay off? Praise God. It paid off. When it comes to the longing for Jesus, there's no wondering. There's only certain hope. He is coming again. We will dwell with him in fullness. This is a certainty. And this is the vision that lies before us. This promise and the work that Jesus accomplished, it ought to move us to cry, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for you. We long for the fullness of your presence. We thank you for the feast of the gospel. We thank you for every good thing we have, but it's not enough. We're ready to leave it beside. Leave it behind that we might know you. So friends, rejoice in feasting and fast in joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your servants, servant Peter and Mark, who so carefully by the guidance of the Holy Spirit gave us this account. And we pray now that you would take these words, living words, active and apply them to our hearts and minds by your spirit that we might go from this place changed. That we might go from this place hungry. More hungry than we came for you. Father, this we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.